Oh man, thank you, Dan. All right, I want to begin this morning by asking you a personal question. Is that all right? Just right out of the gate, we're going to get personal this morning. Here it is, and I want you to think about it. Now I'm catching you off guard, but I want you to really think about this question. When, emphasis on when, when did you become a Christian? Think about that question. How would you answer it? If somebody asked you that question, when did you become a Christian? You know, can, you, can you trace it back to a certain moment in time? You know, perhaps, perhaps you even have a date, right? Like March 5th, 1977. When did you become a Christian? I think it's a very important question to think about. You know, we're, we're seeing here in the book of Acts all these examples, right? Every time we turn the page, people are becoming Christians. They could all look back and say, here it is. This is when I became a Christian. So what about you? Think about it. How would you answer that question? When did you become a Christian? I wanted us to think about that question this morning because typically the primary takeaway from our text today is found in Acts chapter 11 and verse 26, that very last sentence that reads, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. That's usually the takeaway verse. This is the place. The disciples were first called Christians here at Antioch. Now, interestingly, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but tradition tells us that our author, Luke, the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke and who also wrote the book of Acts, we know that Luke was a Gentile, and tradition tells us, get this, he was from Antioch. And so the common thought among scholars and historians is that the church in Antioch is Luke's home church. So not only is this where the disciples were first called Christians, but this is where Luke became a Christian. Now, it could have been prior to Barnabas and Saul's arrival when Luke became a Christian, after all, we're told here in the beginning verses of our text, in verses 19 through 20, that men from Cyprus and Cyrene had to leave Jerusalem because of the persecution and connection with Stephen, and they go to Antioch, and they begin speaking the, 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 the word, speaking, sharing the good news about Jesus, even with the Gentiles, with the Greeks, telling them all about the Lord Jesus and then Luke tells us that a great number, in verse 21, of people believed and turned to the Lord. And perhaps one of those people was Luke. You know, what I really love about these verses here is that Luke doesn't share any of their names with us. We're not, we're not told a single one of their names and I want that to encourage us. This is a group of anonymous saints 
this incredibly significant work. The first church made up of both Jews and Gentiles was started by a group of unnamed followers. Antioch will be known as the birthplace of Gentile Christianity, and the ones who began the work are just ordinary disciples from Cyprus and Cyrene who are open and obedient and who share the good news with their one. And even the Gentiles turn to the Lord. I came across a great quote um, this week. It's actually by a Hindu philosopher who, describing Christians, he did it in this way. He said, Christians are ordinary people making extraordinary claims. I love that. And that's what we see here. They're not even named. Just ordinary people who had to leave because of the persecution. They share. They tell the story. This great work begins in Antioch. Well, it grabs the attention of the mother church back in Jerusalem. We're all, we're actually, where all the big names are located. The 12 are all back in Jerusalem. So they send Barnabas to Antioch, and then he goes and finds Saul and Tarsus and brings him to Antioch in order to help with all the opportunity there. And for a whole year, they meet with the church, and they teach a great number of people. And so it could be that Luke didn't become a Christian until after the arrival of Barnabas and Saul. In fact, it could have been one of them who shared the good news with Luke. We don't know for sure. But the point is, the church at Antioch is where it first happened. Luke, the other disciples there in Antioch, are called Christians. Now, the disciples, maybe you've never picked up on this before, but the disciples were not the ones who came up with the label Christian. As this new group of Jews and Gentiles formed as one people, they didn't have a meeting one Sunday night to discuss what they should be called. It was not a self-designation. In fact, Christian was a nickname given to this group by people outside of the group. It's interesting. The word translated as called here in verse 26, they were first called Christians. It literally means to transact business. And so the sense is, as, as they were out in the public square, as they were out in the marketplace, the citizens of Antioch took notice of them. They took notice of this new group that was made up of both Jew and Gentile together, these two groups who formerly did not hang out with one another. This new group is now conducting business together, and so the citizens of Antioch asked the question, who are these people? What do we call them? They're different from the Jews and Gentiles in Antioch who still choose not to interact with each other. So a new term is needed. And what did these people have in common? What did these Jews and Gentiles who were now transacting business as one, who used to never hang out, 
What is it that they have in common? What's the most recognizable feature of this group of Jews and Gentiles? Well, the most recognizable feature is that they're always talking about Jesus Christ. So let's call them Christ people, Christians, because Jesus Christ is the only common denominator between these two groups that are now transacting business as one. You know, I asked the question earlier, when did you become a Christian? And like I said, I think that's an important question. It's a good introspective question to consider. In case someone were to ask you that, I think it'd be good to be able to answer that person. However, Scott McKnight, who you've heard me mention before, he's one of my favorite authors and theologians, based on this verse in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, he asked this question. He asked, when did your faith become noticeable enough that other people called you a Christian? I like that question. You see, I'm, I'm not just asking you, when did you become a Christian? Tell me what you think. Instead, I'm now asking someone other than you. Someone in your class at school. Someone at your workplace. One of your neighbors. When did they notice that you're a Christian? When was the first time that they thought, huh, you sure are different, and you talk about Jesus Christ all the time, and so I'm going to call you a Christ person or a Christian? Do you see how that's a, that's a different question? It's a good one. It's convicting to me. So this new group of Jews and Gentiles who the citizens of Antioch are calling the Christ people or Christians are causing quite a stir and news makes it back to Jerusalem and they send Barnabas. Now why send Barnabas? Why not send one of the 12? In Acts chapter 8, when news reached Jerusalem that the Samaritans had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. You see, Peter and John went to authorize what was happening in Samaria. This was something new. And so the apostles had to go and check it out. However, here in Acts chapter 11, this is not something new, right? We've, we've spent several weeks looking at Cornelius. Cornelius and the other Gentiles who were with him had received the Holy Spirit at Caesarea, and Peter was there. Peter affirmed what had happened. Peter authorized what had occurred. So when news about what was going on in Antioch came to Jerusalem, there was no need to send out one of the apostles to authorize the work. Instead, they wanted to send someone to encourage the work. And who better to send than the one called the son of encouragement, 
Barnabas. Listen, I love me some Barnabas. Barnabas is my guy. You know, uh, perhaps you've taken a personality test, and then the assessment uh, will compare your personality to certain characters. For instance, a common example that I've seen uh, is they'll use the characters from 100 Acre Woods, right? And so depending on how you score on the personality test, your personality will be compared to Pooh or Tigger or Eeyore, Piglet, you know, there's a number of characters, right? Um, And just in case you want to know, I did take that test and I was compared to Pooh. So there you have it. Uh, Pooh Bear it, see? All right. I don't know. I have, uh, I have never, I've, I've never seen a personality test that compares your personality to characters in the Bible. I'm sure they're out there. But for me, I've always had this connection with Barnabas. There's something about my personality that really connects with Barnabas. And it's not because it says here that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of faith, and so am I. That's not what I'm saying. There's something about Barnabas that I've always felt drawn to and connected to because he was known as a person of encouragement. And I want to be an encourager. And maybe that's all it is. But he's just always been one of my favorite people in the Bible, and Luke has already introduced us to him a couple of times in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 9, and so I have wanted to talk to you about Barnabas on a number of occasions, and I've waited patiently for this text. So let me tell you about Barnabas, and here's how I want us to do that. I want us to talk the rest of our time together this morning about encouragement. I want Barnabas to teach us about encouragement. What does it mean to encourage? How do you encourage someone else? What does encouragement look like? If you were to come up to me afterwards and tell me how much you like my new glasses, is that encouragement or is that just a compliment? Are you following me? Sometimes I think we can confuse complimenting someone with encouragement. If you were to come up to me afterwards and tell me, good job on your sermon, is that encouragement or is that just appreciation? You follow me? Sometimes I think we can confuse appreciating someone with encouragement. You know, we're, we're called to encourage one another. Encouragement's not just something for the Barnabases of this world to do. As Christians, in fact, we're commanded to encourage each other. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Therefore, encourage one another. Build one another up, just as you're doing. The Hebrew writer writes in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13, but encourage one another daily. 
as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We need daily encouragement from one another to keep our hearts from hardening by sin's deceitfulness. We're called and we're commanded as people of Christ to encourage one another. So what does that mean? How do I know maybe I'm just not complimenting you or appreciating you? What does biblical encouragement look like? Well, let's learn for these next couple of minutes from Barnabas. The one the apostles called the son of encouragement. So news of what was happening in Antioch had reached the church of Jerusalem And they send Barnabas to encourage them. And he encourages them in three distinct ways. Three very important ways. Three ways that we all as a people need to be encouraged. And for those taking notes, they all begin with the letter C. So you can go ahead and just write three big C's on your notes and get ready for this. Three ways that we learn from Barnabas and how we can encourage. First, he encourages the church to be people of celebration. He encourages the church to be people of celebration. Verse 23, when he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad. Literally, this word here means to rejoice. He saw the evidence of the grace of God, and he rejoiced. You know, this is actually part of our mission statement here at Southside. It's always good to get the mission statement out and blow the dust off and remind ourselves of who we are and what we're about. Because of Jesus, we seek the lost, we embrace the hurting, we equip the saved, and we celebrate God's grace. We got that from Barnabas. He encourages the church to celebrate the grace of God. So part of what it means to encourage one another, listen now, is to encourage each other to look for the evidence of the grace of God in our lives and to celebrate it. Oh, that's so good. We need to encourage each other to look for the evidence of the grace of God in our lives and to celebrate it. Because, listen, here's the thing. We live in a culture that will celebrate anything. We make up stuff to celebrate. Case in point, today, June the 4th, you didn't know this already, is National Hug Your Cat Day. I'm not making that up. I kid you not. So please, one of you that have feline friends, go home. Hug them for me. You know my email. Email me a picture. I want evidence. I'm kidding. I don't want to see that. But it's, but it's unbelievable 
It's unbelievable. We make stuff up to celebrate. And so let me encourage us, Christ people, to be a people who look for the evidence of the grace of God at work in our world and at work in our lives and celebrate it. Let me give you an example of how this type of encouragement might work. You could be having a terrible day. Nothing's going right. You could be experiencing a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of heartache. Maybe you're dealing with sickness. Perhaps people have let you down. And in your pain, you're wondering where is God in all of it. You need encouragement. You need a brother or sister in Christ to come alongside you and help you to look for the evidence of the grace of God in your life. To help you to find those glimpses of God's grace and then to celebrate it with you. That's encouragement. That's encouragement. So the first encouragement of Barnabas is he encourages the church to be a people of celebration. Second, he encourages the church to be people of commitment. This has got to be the verse in Scripture that summarizes best what biblical encouragement is all about. It's the second half of verse 23. We, we saw the first, we read the first half, but the second half we read that Barnabas encourages the church to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Barnabas encourages the church to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. Do you want to know what encouragement is? That's encouragement. N.T. Wright translates this verse like this. He writes that Barnabas urges them all to stay firmly loyal to the Lord. We have to be people who encourage one another daily to stay firmly loyal loyal to King Jesus. Jesus is Lord, amen? So allow me to be the first to encourage you this week to remain true to him with all your heart. That's encouragement. That's how I want you to encourage me. Encourage me daily to remain true to him with all my heart. Listen to how the KJV translates this verse. It reads that Barnabas exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. That's a great translation. It's good because what Barnabas is is literally exhorting them to do is to cling to the Lord with everything they've got. Don't ever let go. Don't ever stop trusting in him. 
You know, this kind of encouragement combines two really characteristics into one. There's, there's both an encouragement here to be tenacious, to not quit, to don't ever give up. And then there's also an encouragement to be loyal, to not stop trusting Jesus. Church, let's encourage one another to be tenacious, to never give up. Let's encourage one another to be loyal, to never stop trusting Jesus. You see, here in Antioch, it's a bunch of brand new believers. They're all on a spiritual high. There's a lot of excitement. But what happens when Saul and Barnabas leave? You know, you go on a retreat or a mission trip. You experience this this closeness with the Lord. But then what happens when you get home? And everything seems mundane. Or life takes a turn that you weren't planning for it to take. Here's my encouragement to you. Whatever you're going through today, don't give up. Be tenacious. Don't quit. Keep fighting. To live is Christ. And never, ever, ever stop trusting in him. Be loyal. Cling to him. Remain faithful to him because he will remain faithful to you. Don't think twice about it. Now, that's encouragement. It's not, hey, your hair looks nice today. It's this. And then third, he encourages the church to be people of charity. He encourages the church to be people of charity. In the final verses of this text, verses 27 through 30, through a prophet named Agabus, the church in Antioch learns about a severe famine that would spread over the entire Roman world. And how do you think Barnabas encourages the church to respond to this difficult news? Does he encourage them to build bigger barns for themselves? After all, our instincts scream self-preservation. Our natural response in hearing news like this is to circle up the wagons and think about ourselves. How are we going to survive this famine? Remember, in Acts chapter 4, verse 37, when we were first introduced to Barnabas, Luke tells us that he sold a field that he owned, And he brought the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. And to really grasp the significance of what Barnabas did, you have to know that in that culture, land was everything. It was your security. It was your inheritance. It was your retirement plan. 
It was your savings. It was your 401k. Barnabas sold it. And laid it at the apostles' feet. And so, how do you think Barnabas encourages the church to respond to the difficult news about the famine? He encourages them to help those who would be in a worse position than them. Verse 29, the disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. You know, the root word for charity is the Greek word charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. It's the word in our Bibles that's translated as grace. You see, charity is the grace of God in action. Our our acts of charity are evidence of the grace of God in our lives. One of my favorite quotes from history, it's by Emperor Julian the Apostate. He was the emperor of Rome from 361 to 363. Listen to what... Emperor Julian the Apostate said. He said, it's disgraceful when those impious Galileans, that's what he called Christians. It's disgraceful when those impious Galileans support not only their own people, but ours as well. For their actions cause all men to see that our people lack aid from us. You know, over the last century, Christians have become more known for their morality than for their charity. And I'm not saying we aren't supposed to be moral people. But Jesus said the world will know we're his disciples by our charity. So let's encourage one another to be people of charity. That's encouragement. That's encouragement. Church, let me encourage us this morning to be a people of celebration, to be a people of commitment, and to be a people of charity. And if we truly and humbly and genuinely, by the grace of God and through the power of his Holy Spirit, become people who live in this way, then maybe, just maybe, our faith will become noticeable enough to those around us that the world will call us Christ people. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this encouragement this morning from your word. And I pray that it will, through your spirit, just go deep into our hearts. Lord, make us into Christ people. 
Make us in the people of celebration and commitment and charity. Thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you so much for your son, Jesus. It's in his name, for his honor, we pray. Amen. This morning, invitation is to anyone here who, has, who might be here and has uh, never made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. I mean, we would love to be a part of that process. You know, that's not a, you know, making Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior is not a one-time deal. You know, it's not. We give an invitation, but this is just the beginning. It's the beginning of a life with Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful life. You know, I read a quote this, I read a quote a couple weeks ago. Um, It says, being a follower of Jesus doesn't make us better. It makes us better off. better off as followers of Jesus. This morning, if you have never surrendered your life to him, if you've never submitted your will to him in baptism, put him on through faith, we'd love to be a part of that as your church family this morning. Let's stand together and sing.